Good evening and happy Pride. Welcome to the June 2022 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, if you were in San Francisco today for the big parade and festival, I'm glad you made it home safely and are here with us for tonight's show. Stories about sexual and emotional abuse by religious leaders, particularly those in the Catholic Church, and then earlier this month in the Southern Baptist Church, are not necessarily new. They all share similar themes, but each is uniquely painful and tragic. Michael Roberts was one of the thousands of victims abused by a Catholic priest. He's written a new memoir titled Behind Sacred Walls. And while it's painful to read, I have to admit I couldn't put the book down. Mr. Roberts is here with us tonight to share his story, and he's coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, June 26th, 2022. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of June 26th, 2022. Happy Pride! This month, President Biden signed an executive order that includes actions to protect LGBTQI youth from conversion therapy, expand LGBTQI access to comprehensive health care, support LGBTQ youth in schools, end suicide among LGBT youth, eliminate LGBTQI homelessness, address LGBTQI discrimination in foster care, and strengthen support for older LGBTQI adults. President Biden stated that the main focus of the order is protecting young people who are increasingly targets of state legislation that limits access to health care and creates unsupportive school environments. According to the UCLA's Williams Institute, about 2 million youth ages 13 to 17 in the United States identify as LGBT, including 300,000 who identify as transgender. A recent Williams Institute study estimated that 350,000 LGBT adults were subjected to conversion therapy as minors. Thousands of LGBT youth remain vulnerable to conversion therapy in states that do not have a ban in place. Separate research found that lesbian, gay, and bisexual people who experienced conversion therapy were almost twice as likely to think about or commit suicide compared to their peers who hadn't experienced any therapy. Other studies have found high proportions of LGBTQ youth in foster care, juvenile detention, and among the homeless youth population. For example, one study found that 19% of youth in foster care in Los Angeles were LGBTQI identified, two to three times their population in the general population. And this weekend was filled with Pride events happening all over the Bay Area, some for the first time. Clayton, a small town in the heart of Contra Costa County, held its inaugural Pride Parade yesterday on Main Street. The event was hosted by Clayton Pride and emceed by former Mayor C.W. Wolf. Several local businesses sponsored the parade, including the Pioneer Newspaper, Chick Boss, and Safe at Home Inspection Services. The Rainbow Community Center of Contra Costa County, located in Concord, was also a sponsor. The parade featured live musical performances, drag queens, city and county leaders, and hundreds of other participants. The current mayor, Pete Cloven, said, quote, supporting the Clayton Pride Parade is completely consistent with who we are as a city and our motto of doing the right thing, which includes the pillar of inclusion. And Vice Mayor Molly Tillman, an ally and the first black woman elected to the city council, was also excited about the event, saying it's important for LGBTQ youth and families to know they're welcome in Clayton. I'm proud to serve on the Clayton Pride Committee embodying diversity. Clayton Pride is an organization that works to create a city where lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, and intersexed, and asexual people thrive as healthy and equal members of society. It works to advocate for respect, equity, and justice, as well as to build a culturally rich community for LGBTQI people and allies. 
And here in Sonoma County, the city of Petaluma and its police department have launched a safe space program that stands as a statement that hate of any kind is not tolerated. According to a news release, the program provides a location for anyone who is the victim of a hate crime or feels threatened to enter and call police for assistance immediately. Participating businesses, schools, places of worship, and nonprofits receive a free decal to display. The decal means that the participant allows victims to enter and remain on the premises until Petaluma police arrive, call or assist victims in contacting 911 immediately to report hate crimes, and instructs all employees or volunteers to assist victims and or witnesses in this protocol. Petaluma Police Chief Ken Savano said, quote, As public safety servants, our mission is to create a safe and inclusive community where everyone feels safe and welcome. This anti-hate program is another great example of the Petaluma community coming together in the name of community safety, regardless of where you're from, what language you speak, what religion you believe in, or who you love. While the program highlights the LGBTQI logo, it applies to anyone, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, religion, or age. The program originated in Seattle, Washington, and has been deployed by law enforcement agencies around the world. Petaluma is the first city in Sonoma County to adopt the program, and we commend them for taking this step. Petaluma's program seeks to enroll 500 local groups by the end of this month. If you have a local LGBTQ news story, announcement, or an event you'd like to share with our listeners in this segment, tell us about it by going to our website at outbeatnews.com. Just click the Submit Event button at the top of the page. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Morales. Stories about abuse by Catholic priests have been documented and investigated from all corners of the world. And if I hadn't already known about so much of the widespread abuse and how it happens, I don't know if I would have believed what I read in the new book by tonight's guest. It's titled Behind Sacred Walls. The pattern of abuse is all too familiar, but of course, each victim's story is unique, and to tell us more is the author of Behind Sacred Walls, Michael Roberts. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to talk with you about your story in this book. Uh, As I mentioned to you before we started this uh, interview, as I was reading it, it was very hard for me to put down. Uh, I was mesmerized by it, and you know, I'll say having talked with a number of people about abuse in the church and the hypocrisy, and doing some interviews for this show, had I not done those things and I read your book, it it would have just seemed unimaginable to me that all of this happened to you. And But then again, it has happened, and we've seen the story repeated, you know, and revealed in stories like what the Boston Globe wrote about and in in other books, and it's truly tragic. But I want to get to your story. But talk first about Give us a little bit of context about where you grew up and your relationship with the Catholic Church early on. Sure. Um, Before I mention that, I just want to let the the viewers know that um, my book is a personal memoir uh, chronicling the the lengthy, agonizing spiritual, physical, and emotional abuse that I suffered at the hands of several Catholic priests. Um, I grew up in a very small town at the time. You're talking, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And I would say that it was a very small town. It was not a very cultured town. People were very, um, you know, maybe there was a lot of bigotry in the town, which I I felt. Um, And of course, growing up in a town where you were sort of, I felt indoctrinated into this, into the Catholic church, 
you know, that was such a big part of my life. I mean, I was an altar boy. Mm -hmm. I went to uh, catechism, which was, uh, you know, their version of religious school. That was during the summer. So all aspects of my life was around the Catholic Church. We never missed mass. We went to sort of the, you know, specific holiday masses like Easter mass or midnight mass and so forth. Uh, and then, of course, you have baptism and confirmation and first communion and and then the confessional. So my Catholic Church was a, it was a great part of my life. And it was hard for me to be growing up in a town where I knew I was different. But I couldn't understand why. I didn't. There were no gay role models on television. I mean, you right. if there were gay role models, you they were either men dressed as women or uh, they were show on the news. Uh, sort of a gay pride would be sort of the, the crazy, crazy ones, you know, dressed up in very flamboyant outfits. So I think I think in my mind that most people thought gay people were um, pedophiles or would abuse their children um, if you were to be a babysitter. Um, you know, I grew up with these thoughts in my mind and that we were sort of a, a mutation, mm -hmm. a, a sort of a sickness to, to the natural law of things. So growing up was very difficult and my parents were very religious. So I sort of had to play the role of like most gay men when they're little is to play the role of a straight man. Mm -hmm. You have to pretend that you like girls. You have to, you know, I played football in high school one season. I hated every minute of it, but for me it was to show my sort of masculinity mm -hmm. and kissing a girl in school was to show my masculinity. So I kept it hidden in this town and you know, there were, like I said, no role models. Now you have plenty of role models. You in television, Modern Family, and Will and Grace, and Ellen and Anderson Cooper, and the list goes on. I mean, it's much easier today. Actually, the high school has a gay straight alliance. Mm -hmm. So growing up in this town is a little easier if you're, uh, you know, gay or trans, lesbian, or so forth. Um, but back then it was very difficult. So, up in that yeah, and I, I can identify with that. Um, you and I grew up about the same decade in the same time, and, and I had a very similar experience in church, but mine was quite different from yours. I never heard any messaging from priests about being gay. Talk about what you heard. Well, I think I use an analogy in the book, which I, I think sort of sums it up, is the parishioners only see the 10% of the iceberg that's above the water. 90% of the iceberg is below the water. A lot of people don't have a clue what goes on in rectories and churches around the world in the Vatican itself, as, as you know. So I never in my life when I was struggling with my own sexuality, I thought I was, like I said, I was a mutation. Um, I never would have thought a priest was gay. As a matter of fact, I believed 100% that a priest was a representation of God on earth. He was called by God to take God's position here. So when I saw a priest, I was always, I guess I was a paranoid child. I, I mean, I thought, you know, I grew up where my parents sort of made me believe that, you know, God is watching you all the time, you know, so even picking my nose was sort of fear, <laughs> a fearful thing that God could see me 24 seven. And I thought the priest was sort of in that same realm where, you know, when I would see him at church or would walk by him, I thought he could see right through me. So, you know, I had a fear for, I had sort of a fear for, for priests to begin with. Um, so you, you, here I am already a paranoid child. And then you see sort of a priest who, 
you know, actually I, I use in the book, I talk about the experience of going to a confessional where this sort of, you're in this sort of booth and the sort of door slides and there's a mysterious figure on the other side of the screen that you can barely see sort of like Oz. Mm-hmm. Was it Oz? Um, so there was a lot of fear as a child, which is too bad because I think if the church was a little bit more transparent, things would be, have been a little different, but it was sort of, you know, there was a lot of secrecy. You never knew. I mean, when the priest went into his holy sanctum into the rectory, you only could imagine that he was sort of, you know, putting his wings off and he's sort of taking his halo off. And so I had a lot of um, reverence for priests. And I was, I was told that you listen to a priest. You never disagree with a priest. He's, he's never wrong. As a matter of fact, maybe even he's, he's even above parents. So there's a sort of sense of trust. Sure. It's the highest form of trust, I guess you could say. What what about the church attracted you? I mean, was it was it all fear driven and direction from your parents that kept you connected, or was there some something that you got from it that was, I'll use the word attractive, but comforting or empowering? Or... I, I I it's sort of um, two sides of the coin here where. One side, I enjoyed listening to the reverberation of sounds in the church, sort of a, you know, sort of an angelic kind of sound. I used to go to, not far from here, was a, a monastery where I could listen to the monks sing, they mm-hmm. called it Compline at the mm-hmm. time. And to me, I found my God through music, through the sounds of the choir. Um, of course, I think the church uses your senses. You have the sound of the choir, you have incense for smell, you have the visual of the banners and the statues. So uh, for me, it was sort of a pleasurable thing as far as the smell of the incense. And mm-hmm. um, I truly believed, um, you know, that God was was real and that the Bible was 100% true. Um, so I, you know, so there was that side of the coin. But then the other side of the coin where I was struggling with my sexuality and what, what you know, I, I felt, in, in many ways, I, I could go back and say that I felt that I was being punished by God for being um, gay or being different. I mean, I talk about in my book where I happened to be walking out into the backyard, and at the exact moment I looked at the swimming pool, it collapsed. Mm. And it was the weirdest thing at that moment, the pool is collapsing in front of me. Um, we had a house fire that I survived. So I'm thinking that, you know, I'm being punished for my sins. My lifestyle is not, mm-hmm. or my thinking was not in line with what, you know, the normal person was. So, you know, my pe- parents had a dog and I he happened to slip under my leg and got hit by a, ve- a vehicle going down the street. So these were like sort of a lot of signs I'm saying to myself, you know, and then being bullied in school. So I think I was just, I felt as though being punished was kind of a normal thing for me. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, of course, living in the rectory at the time, I had ended up moving into the rectory because he convinced my parents that um, after the house fire that we sort of all dispersed that I would live there until the house was rebuilt. But it was, as my mother said, putting the meat in the lion's den. So, you know, there was a two, it was a struggle. I Here I am. I loved, you know, the sounds of the church, the smell of the church. Yeah, it is interesting you bring that up. I mean, I'm thinking back. I was an altar boy at St. Mary's College in Moraga. So there's an old chapel there. Uh, I would say it's a very traditional kind of a chapel, but the smell 
I can still remember to this day the smell of the incense, the the ceremony of it all was mm-hmm. uh, mesmerizing a bit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I'm grateful that I didn't have to deal with the kind of conflict that you did. I mean, I, I knew I had a sense that being gay was wrong when I was a kid, but it was really more from society than from anything I heard from the church. I think if I had heard like you from people that I revered and and had the fear about going to hell and being a sinner and, and all of that, if that was so reinforced to me, I think my struggle would have been much more difficult. And I can only imagine how it must have been for you. So I remember reading in the book the, the first time that you met Father Gregory in the book, and you were riding your bike up, and a friend of yours was doing yard work. And, and it was almost like you were jealous of him having the opportunity to be there to have that connection. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk a, little, a little bit about that and how that went down. How were you first drawn in to the relationship, I'll call it, with Gregory? Sure. My friend Peter, who lived about three houses from the rectory, <clears throat> always had a, a desire to become a priest. Uh, so seeing him involved with the other priests at the church was not uncommon before father gregory was another priest and he would father amos and he would spend time with father amos but then father amos was transferred and father gregory was took his place so peter ended up being close friends with father gregory but i noticed our friendship sort of waned a little bit we weren't spending as much time together um, I didn't hear from him as much because we would spend, you know, I would hear from him once a week, twice a week. I'd be lucky if I would get a call once or twice a month. And so I felt our friendship was sort of dissipating. So I decided to get on my bicycle and look for him to find out and talk to him, you know, what's going on. And I ended up seeing him down the street at the rectory with the priest pulling out bushes. They were ripping out bushes and I guess they were wanting to re- uh, landscape the front of the rectory. So I noticed when I pulled up to uh, Peter and uh, and Father Gregory, he seemed a little bothered by the fact that I was sort of invading his space, but you know, sort of infiltrating his fortress in a way. Mm-hmm. And I was jealous. I was jealous that he had the relationship with the priest that I wanted. I felt maybe the priest would have the answers that I needed. Mm. They're all knowing. So I was a little jealous because I think it was sort of this sort of sense of the secret society. No one knew about the life of a priest inside of a rectory. And I felt, you know, if you got to know a priest and you were friends with a priest, that you sort of have a certain privilege. And that ended up unfolding when I went to dinner with the priest the first time. It was interesting to watch the dynamics when we went to the restaurant and he was, you know, taken right to the table. He had the best table and you know, the waiters were really, you know, orderly and quick and efficient. So there was a sense of that collar had a sense of power. I felt that when a priest puts on a collar, you see that person a little differently. Even today, if I see a priest, there's a sense, there's a slight reaction. There's a sense of people look at a priest differently. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I, I decided I was going to leave because Paul had left a com- made a comment. Oh, it's you. So I knew that I was not welcomed at the moment. So I ended up getting back on my bicycle. But before I could bicycle away, the priest told me to stop and come help. So that was sort of the beginning of the situation unfolding. I I was there. I helped them both remove the the bushes and the landscape a little bit. And then I ended up leaving. And I remember it was a week or two later where the priest saw me leaving the church and he stopped me. 
and just made a comment where he said, you know, I would love for you to help me around the rectory some more. And I was thrilled. I was, this is great. So it was sort of a slow process of what they call grooming. I visited the priest. He invited me for lunch. The housekeeper made us a nice lunch. Then he invited me for dinner. Then he met my parents. My parents fell in love with him. Now you have to realize this priest was no ordinary priest. He was the kind of a priest where he could swear and he would always grab his doers and scotch. He would go in his Speedo bathing suit to the swimming pool. He would have his certain lines, you know, go pound sand up your ass. Or um, for those who don't deserve the very best, he would hold up his pinky. You know, he was one who was very down to earth. My parents laughed. My parents loved him. You know, he was sort of the father that I never had. And he was, I think he allowed my parents to be themselves around a priest. Because my parents never met anybody like this before. Here my parents are laughing and, you know, they're having, like he's having a scotch and drinking and, you know, he's swearing if he wants to swear. So he was a different priest. And I think my parents felt comfortable with that. And they eventually took him on vacations and, you know, he would go over for dinner. He would be invited for dinner at my parents' house at least once a week. My mother had a meal cooked for him, for him and everybody. So he became part of the family very quickly. Do you think that he had, did, did, did he see you as a target, do you think, from that very first time he met you? Um, well, I discuss in, in the book, there are different types of, I guess you could say, pedophiles. Um, there, I mean, there, there's a different classifications. You know, pedophile is prepubescent children. and But then they talk about a hebeophile, which is, um, they tend to like children at the cusp of puberty between the ages 11 and 14. Most likely he was what they call an ebiophile, uh, and they tend to like, you know, 14 to 17. So he, I think he was attracted, I think he was in, in, in essence attracted to younger teens, you know, from 14 to 17 is what I suspect. And that attraction for him is why, you know, why he went after my friend Peter before me. Mm-hmm. And I never knew what was happening. You know, I still would see them going into the rectory. I would head home. I never knew. I thought maybe, okay, they're having a great time. They're, they're, you know, I don't, maybe it was sort of the mysterious Willy Wonka factory. I didn't know what was going on inside, but I suspected it was wonderful. The priest lived a wonderful life. And, um, but I, what I didn't know was that he was sort of abusing my friend, uh, Peter. So. And, and how old were you at this stage? I had just turned 17 when I um, met Father Gregory, and I loved the attention. I loved the fact that he would take me to dinner, and I felt powerful in a way because here I am sitting at a restaurant with a priest, and people are looking around, and they're like, you know, I felt kind of special, you know, the way way he was treated. And he would buy gifts for me. He bought me religious statues, bought me a camera. I mean, he bought me things. So there was, you know, the, the sense of, Here's the father that I didn't have a relationship with. My father was a, you know, he worked several jobs. He was not a very emotional person. He wasn't one to sit, sit with us and do our homework. You know, he was not one to spend time and play in the yard with us when we were kids. He was a tough guy. I sort of call him the Archie Bunker type. Mm-hmm. You know, he was in the army. He was a police officer and, and he had some hard jobs. So he was, he was a tough, unemotional, unapproachable man. Mm-hmm. So here's this priest, who's priest that's the complete opposite, and in many ways he was the father I didn't have. And it was you and your relationship with Gregory that created the relationship with your family. I'm sure that that 
increased the, your standing with the family and kind of made you a hero because uh, this priest was attracted to you and the family now had this relationship with him. Absolutely. And, and the community. People were sort of in a way jealous. Wow, the, Michael Roberts has the, the priest over the house and he spends time by the pool and they take him on vacation and he's there for dinner. I think people were always, it, it, my parents had a better reputation because of it. Yeah. They were the special ones out of the whole, whole entire town. We were chosen by this priest. So, and I didn't want to ruin that reputation. Of course. I did not want to. Well, and you describe how he really sort of captivated all the followers. He was a very popular priest, at least at the beginning of all of this with the Everybody congregation. Absolutely. He was one to decorate. He was, I guess, a showman, you know, the greatest showman on, of our town. He loved to decorate and Christmas everywhere. And he was sort of like, you know, he, he, he actually, our, before he was there, there wasn't much that was being offered as far as shows. And I mean like theater, he created a theater group. So there were shows in the, in the, in the church mm-hmm. hall. Um, he, his, his masses were always filled with a wonderful choir singing and, and people loved him. And I remember one time it was a very hot summer day. There's no air conditioning in the church. It's very hot. And he ended up getting up to the altar and people are fanning themselves with the missalettes. And he said, you think it's hot here? It's even hotter in hell. Please rise. That was his sermon. And people loved that kind of different approach. You know, mm-hmm. they didn't suffer through a 20 minute, half an hour sermon, but they loved the fact that he did, would say something like that. And he would tell jokes when people were leaving um, at, you know, at the end of mass, he would always be at the door tell jokes and I could hear him laughing and hugging people and very charismatic, of course. He was a master at building fake trusting relationships. I mean, that's one of the things that I, I mean, he was just, he seemed to be just a master at that. Were you drawn to consider the priesthood as a vocation? I didn't know. I mean, maybe there was a part of me. It was as a kid, I struggled because I I really loved fashion Mm -hmm. and I loved I remember ripping out magazines, uh, ripping up, you know, like GQ magazine or International Mail. I used to love Duran Duran. They used to wear, fun, you know, really incredible clothing mm-hmm. um, from Come de Kassan or Isaac Miyake. Is Isaac Miyake, I think is his name. But anyways, he, he, they used to wear really incredible fashions and I wanted to be them. I wanted to be outrageous with fashion and, and I loved fashion. And I remember there was a clothing store which sort of was, which deviated from the normal clothing mm-hmm. that most straight men would wear. It was called Chess King. Yep, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And I would go there because it was really funky clothing. I mean, I remember blue parachute pants. Yep. And a matching white jacket <laughs> with the matching blue vest and, uh, you know, sort of the Duran Duran br- wide brim hat. So. I have a picture of myself in that actually going to a Duran Duran concert. But I loved I loved fashion. I loved clothes. But I also loved the outdoors. I loved wildlife. Mm-hmm. I always said maybe I could be a you know fashionable forest ranger wearing Ralph Lauren or something. And the priesthood was only a small part of my thought at the time. I, I yeah yeah I get it. Well, this is a perfect opportunity to break for some music and a special pride greeting from our friend up north from Canada, Stephen Skechia. We'll be right back. Hi there. My name is Stephen Skechia. I am 30 years old and I live in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Um, I came out of the closet when I was 16 years old. I was still in high school 
And the reason why I'm choosing to record Love Story by Taylor Swift for Pride um, is for a couple of reasons. I actually don't change the pronouns in the song, so it does make it a little more Pride appropriate. But I do remember back when I was 16 and I was first coming out, I actually... This song was very, very popular when I came out, and I was having a lot of issues at home. I mean, my parents are my best my my best cheerleaders and my best friends, but when I first came out, it wasn't initially the case. I struggled a lot um, with kind of getting the understanding from my parents and therefore the support. I have it now, but at the time it was really tough, and I had my first boyfriend at the time and this song was very popular and our because of our lack of support from our loved ones this kind of relationship we had with each other felt a bit like a forbidden love story and so he used to actually dedicate this song to me so it has a very personal pride meeting for me and uh, I just wanted to share it with you all and uh, I hope you all enjoy it, and I hope you have a happy Pride. Thank you so much for having me. We were both young when I first saw you. I closed my eyes. The flashback starts, I'm standing there On a balcony summer air See the lights, see the party, the ball gowns See you make your way through the crowd and say hello Little did I know Daddy said, stay away from Juliet And I was crying on the staircase Begging you, please don't go And I said, Romeo, take me Somewhere we can be alone I'll be waiting All there's left to do is run You'll be the prince and I'll be the princess It's a love story, baby, just say yes To the garden to see you We keep quiet We're dead if they knew So close your eyes Escape this town For a little while You were Romeo I was a scarlet letter And my daddy said Stay away from Juliet But you were everything to me I was begging you Please don't go Tell me how to feel This love is difficult But it's real Don't be afraid We'll make it out of this mess It's a love story Baby, just say yes I got 
Stephen Skechia with his version of Love Story. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Alpi News in Depth here on KRCB 104.9 FM. I'm Greg Moralia, and tonight with me is Michael Roberts. He's talking about his memoir, Behind Sacred Walls. So in the first half of the show, we were talking about how Father Gregory groomed you. I mean, obviously, Gregory spent some calculated time befriending you, working Mm -hmm. his way into your family. He invited, I remember reading the first time you visited the rectory and that lunch that you mentioned, and then you were invited to come over and hang out in his room and watch TV. I can only imagine how special that must have been. But then the sexual abuse began. I mean, here you are in this special place in this, what started out to be a trusting relationship, and now all of a sudden he's taking it into this completely different area that you had been struggling with. Yeah, that was a shock. That was a shocker because, you know, in his, his room was sort of like a boy's, you know, like a treehouse. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll use that as an analogy. It was sort of the special place that me and the priest could hang out and he had all kinds of treats. I mean, I remember, you know, Oreos and pistachios and fudge and he had all these things in his room and it was so nice to be able to just snack. We watch TV, watch movies. So it was sort of like hanging out in a boy's room in a boy's treehouse. So the first time the, the the sexual abuse happened was it, it was difficult for me i i remember he asked me to close my eyes and not to open them he was be, he was very adamant about me not opening my eyes so when i finally he told me to open my eyes i the room was lit with candles he had put some music on he had a, a he had a tray of cheese and crackers and wine and of course i was not you know i was not a person who ever experienced drinking alcohol as a matter of fact when he first invited me he had me taste the scotch and i was tasted like octane but um so you know i was underage and you know i thought this whole situation was very peculiar i didn't understand what was going on deep down inside i felt this is not gonna this is not going in a good place but he basically told me that he was a gay man and he had a relationship with another priest um but they were not sexually compatible and they are just friends he was a priest up in another state up north. So after he's telling me about his relationship, he mentioned that he was attracted to me. And that's what I really felt uncomfortable. So I ended up excusing myself and going into the bathroom. And I talk about feeling like a trapped wolf in this room. I, I mean, I remember looking outside the window in the bathroom and wanting to escape down up from the second floor. And I didn't know what to do. I was afraid because, you know, here, the, you, at the time, you're being told by your parents to respect a priest, and the priest is the ultimate um, of trust. 
I didn't want my parents to know anything. I didn't mm-hmm. want my parents' reputation in the town. I was, I was worried that I was going to make God angry if I didn't listen to a priest. And I didn't want to make the priest upset. So I had all these sort of variables weighing on me here. And eventually I did leave the bathroom. And I sort of stood by the door and he told me to sit down. And that's when he decided to sort of, I guess you call it, um, sort of um, taking advantage of someone, you know, mm-hmm. massaging mm-hmm. me and mm-hmm. sort of led to a sexual assault. Um, and I was in shock. I mean, I, again, I never would have expected that to, that would ever happen. You know, uh, and he, it, was, it was tough. It was a tough moment. Uh, I, I, yeah. I can't even imagine that the power play there that was involved and the conflict that you must've felt the risk to your family. And, and then also that, that kinship that you at some level, at least initially were attracted to, right. The, the relationship with the priest, the specialness of all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's interesting about your story as well, that's important for listeners to know is that when we think about abuse by priests, you know, I always go to sexual abuse, but it, the abuse you suffered is far broader than that. It wasn't just sexual abuse. Talk about how he, how he developed full control over almost every part of your life. I mean, he had a grip on you. Yeah, I mean, you know, when going back, when it first happened to me, I was paralyzed. I mean, I, it was inconceivable that this was happening to me, but there was a small part of me that... When you're, when you're struggling with figuring out your sexuality and why you're attracted to men, and all of a sudden this man is abusing you, there's a part of you saying, is this what it's supposed to be? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sort of like the, the, the Greeks in the Roman baths when the older man would have the younger boy. Is this sort of what's supposed to take place? Here's the older man abusing a younger boy. So I struggled with, is this what being a gay man is? is? Um but I also was so afraid of my parents finding out because I, I envisioned, I talk about sort of an analogy. I envisioned sort of people finding out that I'm gay in the town or, or what I thought maybe was a mutant that you see the image of people with pitchforks going after Frankenstein coming up the hill and wanting to kill this monster, which I felt I was the monster. So I was afraid my parents would find out the community would find out. And the priests also would say things like, no one needs to know. We all have needs. Don't worry, your parents won't know. In a way, he's basically saying, you know, I'm not going to tell your parents, so you still need to do this. Um, and if you don't, they will know. So, um, Right, because anyway, he ended up using that, right? That became a threat, a powerful threat by him, that if you don't continue... Little, absolutely. It ran through the back of my, my mind that He's sending me these messages that if, you know, your parents won't find out. And I thought, geez, it would be so simple for him to say, your son is sick. My parents would believe it. My parents would believe a priest over me. Mm-hmm. And again, this is back in the 80s. So it's right. a different t- mindset, different time. You know, Spotlight wasn't out, the movie Spotlight and Cardinal yes. Law, all that wasn't, there was no exposure. None of that came out. So. Right. There, none of that was known at the time. I mean, I think I think uh, many people would have simply not believed you. But part of the grooming process for him was deadening my voice. He would we go to a restaurant. He would order for me. I never felt I was, and he would never 
you know, allow me to order something. He would order my entire meal. Um, he would pick, he took me to a clothing store and picked out the clothes I should wear. Uh, we went to look for a used car eventually down the road and he picked up the car. I mean, he, and, and he was one who did all the speaking for me. And I tried to have a voice. I remember I would ask him questions and I'll give you examples. Um, after the abuse, I saw the angry side of him, which I had never seen before. And I'll give uh, one of the examples was I had asked him, why can't women have abortions? I just figured I would just ask him. And he yelled at me and said, I'll, um, I'll give them pro-choice. They can close to choose their goddamn legs. So it was not like I was able to even have a normal conversation. I, I became afraid of even talking to him. I was afraid of asking questions. Hmm. You know, why can't women become priests? Yeah, when the Pope gets married and gets divorced and has children, that would be the goddamn day that they'll have, you know, it was always this sense of anger. And how do you have a relationship or a friendship with somebody like that? Where you're even afraid to talk to them, let alone being abused. And he controlled every aspect of my life. And this went, this went on well into your twenties. Yeah. I went into my twenties. I mean, I gave another example where he convinced me to go on a trip with him to a cottage by the ocean. One of the, one of the, uh, parishioners owned a cottage and allowed him to go. Um, he wouldn't feed me at the cottage until we, he, we would have the sexual encounter. So I, my self-esteem was so low. I kind of walked around like a zombie. I just allowed it to happen. Um, I felt I never could get out of this situation. He, he ended up getting me a job at another church where I was, no pun intended, called the head sexton, uh, where I would set up for the masses and um, clean the church mm -hmm. and, and so forth. I would take care of the church and, and its grounds. But that's when I felt my, my boss was a different, his name was Father Oliver, was my boss at that other church. So I remember one day going up to Father Oliver and telling him that I wanted to talk to him privately. Somehow I gathered up enough courage to, to, to want to speak and tell him what was going on with me and Father Gregory. So I met him in his office, which was located in the church. Mm -hmm. he, he, um, I told him that I was being abused by Father Gregory. And Father Oliver was like shocked in a way. I thought, okay, he's shocked. And he's going to support me in this. And he shuts the door and he says, tell me more. I said, well, he's abusing me and he's sexually uh, physical with me. He's sexually... He's a, a verbally abusive, and he said, you know, he shouldn't be verbally abusive or physically abusive. You know, being gay isn't the issue. He, he, and he got up, and that's when he said, you know, you need a hug. In other words, he thought he would abuse me in a nice, nice, gentle way. So at the time, he's hugging me. He's trying to kiss me. Yeah. And I'm resisting, and that's when he decided to unzipper my pants and oral copulation and so forth. And he then he closed the door and left. It was as though he scampered out. Like after he did that, he scampered away. And I allowed it because I had no sense of self. Self. I mean, I was so destroyed emotionally. It's no self-esteem, and here is another priest abusing me. As a matter of fact, I had a friend at the time that I kind of kept secret. My friend Lee who said he could have abused me. Almost anybody could have abused me back then because I just didn't have any sense of self. 
Well, and there was so much of a threat. You were so fearful about all of the negative ramifications that would have happened. You valued your family. Uh, and that was the hammer that, that was the grip, as I like to describe it, that he had over you. And it, it must have just absolutely rocked your world to think that every person that you tried to go to to bring this up was just like him. And they tried to... Absolutely. I went to my parents one night in their bedroom and I said, I don't like Father Gregory. I don't like the way he treats me. I was trying... It was hard for me to, to even get out those words. I didn't want them to know the, the sexual abuse, but I figured at least I could say he's not very nice to me. But they were, again, they, they were oblivious to what was happening. They basically would say, you know, he's done so much for you. We all have our faults. You have to understand that he has his faults too, and but he's done so much for you. And there was a there was a dynamics that my parents had. It was a pseudo life that they had. I mean, sometimes when I was working, he was already sitting by the pool with my parents, so he had sort of a separate relationship with my parents. I didn't want to ruin that. Mm-hmm. My mother, I, to hear my mother laugh and my father laugh and have a great time with this priest, I was afraid to ruin that microcosm that separate yeah. thing that was happening you know um so and if i was to ruin it my parents would know about me right and you know my father was the atypical macho man who thought you know gays should be put on some separate island you know mm-hmm. they're sick in the head and i remember one time one of my brothers was joking around saying gay should be shot you know I don't think he would have, you know, done it, but I, it's still just being being hearing that was painful for me. Sure, because they're talking about me. Um, so, yeah, and so my parents sort of I, my voice was deadened by my parents, who I wanted to talk to them about it, but just didn't um, understand what was happening. And then the pre, the second priest, the same thing. I had so I I felt trapped. Sure. The level of hypocrisy, the double life, triple lives that these priests that you met were living is astounding to me. I mean, you talk a lot about Father Gregory's friends, uh, and you would, he would bring you over to their house regularly, and there were these parties, and but his behavior was so completely opposite of what anybody would expect or believe that, quote-unquote, a priest should be. And he was very comfortable and confident with that. Everything from profanity to all of the, the sexual uh, stuff. I don't even People know. People were attracted to his cockiness. People were attracted to his being real. I, you know, swearing, we all swear, but a priest to swear. I think people liked him because the, the charismatic normalcy that he created. He could swear with the best of them. He could drink with the best of them. He could laugh. And he was just... He was he was quite unique and quite different, but that ended up being his downfall. But he was you have to realize too he was the other side like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. He was very neurotic. He would drive by my house five six times a day to make sure I was home. I remember one time getting up. It must have been I can't remember the time, but I in the book I it had to have been one two or three in the morning. I got up to go to the bathroom, but it was odd because the timing was that I heard a car coming up the street. And we had a quiet street and there wasn't back then many cars that would travel at that hour. So I just happened to peer out the window 
And it was him driving by at like two in the morning. He didn't see me because the light was out in my room, but I thought that was the oddest thing in the world. So strange that he'd be driving by to see if I was home. Um, like I said, he had his friends there. I, I talk about the, the abuse in the basement. Right. The trial. The trial in the basement. He, he was very paranoid that I was still being friends with Peter. He didn't want anything. He, he, would, he hated Peter. Now that he, had the, he was abusing me, Peter, he had no use for Peter. So he would talk about Peter being a whore and a slut and how horrible Peter is. And he tried to convince me that Peter was terrible, but Peter was my friend and I had sort of a secret friendship with him. I didn't tell Father Gregory that I was friends with Peter, but every so often I would get together with Peter. Long story short is that he was paranoid that I had a friendship with Peter. So I ended up going to the bar with Peter and one of Father Gregory's friend, Reggie, saw me there and must have reported back to Father Gregory. Next thing I know, a couple days later, I go over to Sandra's house and I'm, I'm, I was to follow them to a neighbor's house where it was, I was led to a basement. It was set up like a trial. There were four chairs. I was in the chair facing those four chairs and there was a pedestal. And I was put on trial and made to ask questions I mean, answer questions. It was the strangest, bizarrest thing you could have ever experienced. And I, they, the jury, which was made up of Father Gregory, his friend Sandra and her two sons, and Reggie was the, was the judge. And I was, they deliberated and I was found guilty. I was lying because I had gone to the bar and, and um, you know, and I paid consequences, you know, like, I mentioned in the book where he would get up in front of the, the entire congregation and say, my best friend had passed away. I was his best friend that passed away. That's how he would punish me by him. He would get the sympathy because he would be at the, the uh, entrance of the church and people would be saying, I'm so sorry, would hug him, you know? So he was getting sympathy while I was the one that he was talking about at mass that had passed away. Unbelievable. He did things that were very cruel and, and there was yeah. just the evilness. And what was his downfall? What, how did it all come crashing down? Well, it, eventually, you know, he got transferred, which was helpful for me because at the time he was further away from my parents and he was further away from, from me. And um, I, I, I had moved, I finally eventually moved to the city, just outside the city. And mm -hmm. I had a secret relationship but I was still traveling to him for him to abuse me. <laughs> That's how ingrained and how uh, indoctrinated I was. I had a secret relationship with my partner, Carl, who I talk about in the book, but I was still driving to have the sexual relationship with the priest. Um, my relationship ended with Carl, and I remember sitting in the apartment depressed because the relationship had ended. And I knew it would anyways, because I was picking up the characteristics of the priest. I was becoming controlling. I was becoming neurotic with my partner who should have left. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't see that. But I was crying and I remember how devastated I was. And I got a phone call from Father Gregory because he'd call me several times a day. And we chatted on the phone and he was, he just thought, Carl, I, I did mention I had a roommate, but he just thought he was a roommate. Oh, your roommate will use you and blah, blah, blah. So I'm telling him that he moved out and see, he was a user and no one's ever going to treat you as good as me. And you need to get your, put your senses together and, 
and become a priest so we can be together. And <clears throat> long story short is I remember that specific conversation at the very end, he would always say, I love you. <clears throat> it was just a normal thing. And I would respond, I love you. Every conversation always ended that way. This time I couldn't do it. I couldn't respond with, I love you. And that's when all the anger and rage just came out of me and said, you ruined my life and you destroyed my self-esteem. And I, I, how could you have done this to me and sexually abused me? And, <clears throat> and I must've went on for several minutes. And at the very end, all I heard on the other end of the phone is because you let me. Mm. He, that was his answer, because you let me. I smashed the phone down. And I knew at that point I was, I mean, I was destroyed. This man used me and destroyed me. And I remember going to the psychiatric ward. I drove myself to the psychiatric ward of the main hospital in the city. And I didn't want to live. But I also knew that I didn't want to take, I, I, it was sort of like, you don't want to live. You want to kill yourself, but you can't do it. Right. So, but I still thought, geez, I need help. And that's when it all began. And, <clears throat> and that's when it spiraled to me eventually calling the auxiliary bishop. You're, you never really see the bishop. You see the auxiliary bishop. I told the auxiliary bishop what was happening to me. And at the time, I just wanted him to be removed and get help. I never even thought about any kind of financial gain. Um, and the, I talk about the auxiliary bishop wearing you know, his big ring on his finger and trying to intimidate me. And basically, they wanted to sweep it under the rug. Stay in therapy, Michael. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So I had no choice but to get a lawyer because they didn't want to do anything. And I didn't want him hurting anybody else. And I don't know if he's hurt anybody else. I don't know what, when he left the area here and I was, I don't know if he had another, he was grooming another teenage boy. I never and, found out. And there was a long, there's a long journey between that point And finally he was defrocked. That's the, that, that's the difficult part because that happened around, I think I got the, I got with the lawyer around 92, 1992, and maybe it was settled 93, 94. He stayed a priest. He was removed, but you still, you still get paid by, you know, you get still get paid. He was paid until 2015. Oh my gosh. So from 1992 I'm 1990, I'm sorry, 93 or 94. He was paid until 2015 when he was finally defrocked. So basically, they did nothing. They removed him on administrative leave. The Vatican did nothing. So how many popes did we have? There were several popes that must have known about his, uh, the documents. I'm sure the documents were sent to, to the Vatican. Um, and several bishops knew about this priest, and yet nothing was done. Wow. But my friend Peter was really the catalyst. Peter left the priesthood. Peter was only one year away from becoming a priest, and he had a breakdown. And he left the priesthood. He had four years of seminary, seminary behind him, and he had three years of North American College, which is a college near the Vatican. He was only one, way, one year away from becoming a priest. He pursued him being defrocked. And... Um, Paul was the catalyst to make it happen. Mm. Well, the book is called Behind Sacred Walls, The True Story of My Abuse by Catholic Priests. It's a fascinating book. So congratulations on the book. Uh, I'm sorry that you had to write it. 
but it is an important story for people to know. And I think it would be particularly helpful for people who have suffered abuse to know that they're not alone. Uh, where can people go to find it? Well, I, I have a website called BehindSacredWalls.com, which is up and running. Uh, there's many links to different uh, bookstores, and you know you can get it ebooks, Kindle or Nook. Uh, but it's on Amazon, Walmart. I think basically it's on about 20 or 30 different book sites, online bookstores, and it's also in about seven different countries now. So um, yeah you can pretty much type in any online bookstore and you'll find it. Perfect. And if you missed that, go ahead. I just, I just wanted to mention a good portion, about 40% is going to charity. Uh, It's going to snap, which is survivors network of those uh, abused by priests. So um, I'm giving quite a big portion of that, the proceeds. Fantastic. And so if you missed that website, we'll have it on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page and you'll find a link to BehindSacredWalls.com. Michael Roberts, thank you so much for being with us tonight. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that wraps up our hour. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer as they share voices of pride from this year's Sonoma County Pride Celebration. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on 104.9 KRCB Radio. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia. Our shows are available for on-demand play anytime on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now on iHeartRadio. Find links to subscribe at outbeatnews.com. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round, and you can't find a fighter. But I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out. Move mountains. Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCBFM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at rockyandrosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCB-FM Roanoke Park and KRCG-FM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.